Welcome to Chief Evangelist. I'm your host, Ethan Butte. I'm on a mission to explore and understand the role of the Chief Evangelist and the movement behind it. How should founders, investors, and C-suites be thinking about it? How does it benefit the company? Which companies and markets need evangelism most? What does the work involve? What does success look like? And who's a good fit as a chief evangelist? That's what we're exploring at chiefevangelist.com and in conversations like this one, which is brought to you by Ringmaster Conversational Marketing and their evangelist-powered podcasting package. Learn more at ringmaster.com. Today, we're learning from the chief evangelist at Illumio and the creator of the zero trust model of cybersecurity. When I tell you that he's one of the world's foremost cybersecurity experts, it's, it's an understatement. I could bore him and regale you with the names of all the events and media outlets and global organizations who've engaged him. Prior to joining Illumio, he served as VP and senior analyst for Forrester Research, field CTO for Palo Alto Networks, and senior VP of cybersecurity strategy at Ontuit. He also serves as an advisor to several companies. John Kindervog, welcome to Chief Evangelist. Hey, thanks, Ethan. I appreciate uh, you inviting me on today. Yeah, I'm excited for the conversation. I'm excited to know because like so many folks who've been on this show, you've been an evangelist for at least a dozen years by my count, uh, whether or not you've carried the title um, and now you are properly carrying the title. So I'm really looking forward to this idea that you um, developed, formalized, and essentially a movement that you've been creating for years that's now culminated into a specific chief evangelist title. Um, and with that, I'll just ask you the question I've asked everyone who's been in your seat, which is what is the most important job of a chief evangelist? Being able to tell a story, having a narrative that is compelling, not just technical, but is com a compelling narrative that you can believe in, right? Everybody who's an evangelist believes in the cause they're evangelizing. So it comes down to uh, the quality of what you're, you know, what you're talking about. And you have to have belief in it. Uh, if, you, if, if you're just doing that as a job and not a passion, it's going to be, people are going to see through that. Yeah, it is. Um, it's a very human to human experience. It's one of the things I love about it. Another title you've carried is field CTO. And the field piece is kind of that human to human piece. Like I'm not hanging around on the other side of the screen as much as I am out and about and engaging. Um, for you, uh, I've only heard that term once on the show before. Um, and it's someone with a background similar to yours, um, just in terms of kind of um, security, antivirus type stuff. Uh, for you, what is the relationship between those two titles? Are they essentially the same thing? How long, and, and maybe how long have you been aware of such roles, field CTO and chief evangelist? Well, I mean, when I was interviewing at Palo Alto Networks, uh, the CMO that I was interviewing with, who had been a friend of mine for a long time anyway, said, I want you to be the field CTO here. And I said, what's a field CTO? And he said, well, I guess you're the, technical person who's in the field all the time. And we Googled it and we were like, I think you just made that term up. But uh, whether he did or not, uh, it was just, it, you're always out there engaging with customers, which I like. So right before the pandemic, uh, I was on the road about 220 days a year. And it's exhausting, but, 
and I hate travel. I really hate travel, the act of traveling, but I really enjoy getting to meet people all over the world. And, you know, when we come down to it, the only purpose for doing all this stuff is to make people's lives better. You know, that's the reason for technology. Technology for technology's sake means that Skynet's going to go self-aware. We're going to have the Terminators and, and we're all going to die anyway, right? And so if you're just into it for the technology and not the human aspects of it, it's not a good fit for you. Yeah, and that's best uh, transmitted human to human in a, in a direct moment, especially the belief piece. I mean, talk a little bit about, I mean, for me, when I'm able to engage, this is one of the things that kind of was super challenging for me during the pandemic was taking what I would normally do in a small group setting or even from a stage, small, medium, large room, doesn't matter, and and translate it to a digital environment where you lose eye contact, you lose the feel of the room, and you lose the ability really to see some of those light bulbs go on or those aha moments that people have. Like, I feel like that's the thing that always gave me the energy back that I needed to like bring my best self. Like, does any of that resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. Because you, if you go into a room and nobody's giving you any feedback, any energy, it's really hard to present to them. I mean, this is true. Hey, I'll say it. I'm half Norwegian. So my grandfather was from Norway and the Norwegians are very staid. And uh, if you, I learned they always give a speech after they've had a couple of drinks, because otherwise you could be talking to a room full of mannequins or something. But once they're loosened up a little bit with a couple of beers, then they're a fun audience. But you need that energy back from the audience. And you're right, you can't get that uh, on a webinar. You have to you have to drag it out of yourself somehow. And so that's why having a story that you can believe in, a, an organization you can believe in, whatever you're evangelizing, that's so important. If you're doing it just for the job and the money and you and you you don't believe the things that people are telling you and then you're regurgitating it it's going to be difficult people again they won't buy it yeah uh we can tell the difference even if we can't uh, uh articulate it uh it's something that we sense intuitively as people when did um the language of evangelism and evangelist come onto your radar is this something you've been kind of in touch with for a long time um or is it newer language to you I guess I've, you know, the last, oh, you know, we've talked, I think most of my career, you've been, people have been talking about evangelism as kind of a sales function, uh, you know, but as a formal role, I think it's fairly new. I don't remember the first time I heard it, uh, but it's, it's a, you know, it's just a, a, a way to help people understand that you're not there in a pure, I'm going to sell you something function right now. I'm yeah. going to tell you a story. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to get you involved in a movement. And uh, so th there's those aspects of it that hopefully the, the person that you're talking to can be, can relax a little bit and not feel like, Oh man, they're, you know, I, I they're trying to get my checkbook, um, you know, a check out of my checkbook right now. Yeah, I mean, the guard's down a little bit. Uh, there's certainly a different reception to it. And essentially, you're selling ideas uh, and a potential future. You're not really selling any, like, uh, you don't need a PO to buy what I'm selling, right? It's just like, uh, I'm selling 
the concept of a transformation and perhaps an interactive experience with some discovery and diagnosis in it that may result in the prescription of a product I represent, but that's not why I'm in the room. Typically what I would do at this moment, John, is get into like how you connected with Illumio, how they connected with you, um, how and why you took on the role. And we'll do that, but we're going to do it after I hear you out on a story arc that I'm going to dramatically um, uh, condense into this idea. You generated an idea in some language about a dozen or so years ago, zero trust model. Um, you were... Uh, think maybe ridiculed in some in some uh some rooms or in some communication around it because it was um against the grain at the time or against the status quo at least uh and here we are years later um there's an entire industry built around it. i don't know if you've quantified how many uh hundreds of millions of dollars are probably being generated in the implementation of this zero trust concept but i know there are a number of companies doing it and uh, again, an executive order from President Biden um, that uh, several federal agencies need to implement these um, strategies. And so I just condensed a whole lot of stuff. I'd love to hear that story in whatever way you would like to tell it, because this is the foundation of the movement that you sparked and, is, and I've obviously committed to. And I don't think it's very difficult for you to step into a room and communicate about it with some deep belief because they're ideas you generated. Right. So when I got to Forrester, uh, it was very much a pure research organization. I remember the first day uh, of our analyst training class, because I'd been a network engineer and security engineer before that, uh, and I didn't even know what an analyst was when I took the job. And they, uh, you know, the person teaching it, she wrote down on the board our job description, and it said, think big thoughts. And it was that freedom that allowed me and other people to come up with ideas that you couldn't create other places, right? So I was asked to look at why are we having so many cybersecurity problems and having installed a lot of firewalls and other technology, I said, well, that's this broken trust model. And vendors didn't like to hear that because, you know, they've, they've actually named the interfaces trusted and untrusted, but other people go, oh, I get that. I, I see where that's coming from. And so so uh, there was a lot of people who were early adopters who were important people. I mean, people in the government, people in governments around the world, They that resonated with them because they'd struggled with that same problem. And so, yeah, there was ridicule at first. And still, even, even to this day, I was on a call uh, two days ago with somebody who's confused again by human trust and digital trust. You're saying people aren't trustworthy, and I'm always saying, no, no, I'm saying people aren't packets. They're not the same thing. So, you know, once once people understand that, you get you do get that light bulb moment. And I've had so many times when somebody who was really criticizing the concept, then somebody else would come in, and then they would be the d defender, right? And then because suddenly they had a moment where they understood it, and they say, "No, no, you're you're misunderstanding it." And then I would just sit back and watch that that interaction play out. But early on, the biggest people, the biggest uh, advocates of it were were executive leadership. I mean, I once did a workshop for a bunch of people who didn't want me to be there, but the chief legal officer sponsored it because. I need to protect our patents. 
and nobody is telling me how I can do that. And I told him exactly how to do it. Right. And, uh, you know, that that kind of thing. Uh, and so people who are steeped in technology and and especially aligned with a particular vendor will often say, well, we're this or that shop. And I remember saying to a big organization once, I would never want you to say name of my company shop because I think you should be name of your company shop. And uh, that just changed everything for the leadership in the room. Because they went, oh, I get it, right? I got to do the things that are best for me. And you have to protect your data and assets and not just deploy technology. And so zero trust is a strategy that will resonate up to the highest levels of any organization, yet be tactically implementable using state-of-the-art, commercially available technology. And those two things are decoupled from each other, the strategy and the tactics. And so the strategic... uh, leadership, the strategic actors really resonated with it and then pushed it down. That's where it got successful. It wasn't like all of the engineers and security people were in love with this and wanted to do it. They looked at me completely nuts, but their boss's 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 boss thought it was a great idea. And so I think that's where having the ability to tell a story, build a narrative came uh, became valuable that led to the field CTO role and the chief evangelist role. Really good. And uh, my part of my imagination around this is that the status quo is just easier for the person on the front line. Like, I don't I don't want to change my approach to all this stuff. Uh, and I can see how this could come top down. I'm going to I'm going to grossly oversimplify it. And we don't need to get super technical, um, particularly for the audience, um, you know, that we, that we have here in the community that we have here around chief evangelist. But I, I do want to get get into enough detail to make clear how different this, uh, this strategy was to the status quo at the time by my absolutely naive, I am not a cybersecurity person, I'm not a security person, I'm not a network person. My understanding of it uh, was that the predominant concept was perimeter-based, where you draw a perimeter around the organization's digital stuff, and everyone inside is cool, they're, they're, you could, they're allowed access, and everyone outside of it, that's who we need to defend from. So there are a bunch of strat- a bunch of tactics that happen that way. There's a bunch of tools you can implement that way. Um, the idea of zero trust isn't we don't trust people. It's that we should define very specific surfaces to protect as opposed to everyone inside has access to everything. We're going to define things very specifically and decide who needs access to what. And the assumption here is that no one should have access unless they need access. And this the idea of defining specific spaces to protect allows us to, um, A, administer on a per-use basis and to prioritize those. So like, um, and, and somehow that was dramatically different than what was being done. How close did I come to the high points of this and what would no, you like to I, add or correct? That's really close. I mean, you look at Snowden or Manning, right? Uh, I call them, you know, the, the Beyonce and the Rihanna of cybersecurity because they're so famous, they're one-word people. And both even of in them, the mainstream, even in the mainstream. And so both both of those uh, actors had access to everything on the networks that they compromised because of the this trust model, which said, hey, if, if I'm, you know, part of if I'm part of this network, I can have access to everything on the network. And so that's the problem is that you're trusting a, a thing called a packet, which is a bunch of electrons or photons uh, representing zeros and ones. And so when you, you know, 
de-anthropomorphize the problem and say it's not John on the network, it's packets being generated by a machine that's asserted to come from John, then people understand that and they go, oh, yeah, that's probably not a good idea to say just because, uh, you know, there's some tag that says it comes from John, I should just let it come through. And so when you, you know, I can talk very technically with with uh, people about that, but abstractly as well enough that, you know, the president will issue an executive order. And, and I was abo- appointed by a proxy of the president to sit on the presidential uh, NSTAC subcommittee on zero trust. So again, leadership can really understand this and buy into it because it deconstructs a lot of the problems that they don't understand. Everybody talks, you know, technical mumbo jumbo to them and they, they want to hear business ideas. They want to hear grand strategic ideas. And uh, I was trying to bring strategic thinking into the area of cybersecurity because as one of my mentors who taught me about strategy, a, a former uh, lieutenant colonel in the Air Force who is a very well-known uh, military strategist, he said, John, everybody confuses strategy and tactics. They think they're being strategic, but they're really being tactical. So everybody's focused on products and not a, not the big idea that's going to achieve the ultimate goal. And the up, ultimate goal is to stop data breaches or to make other cybersecurity attacks unsuccessful. That's what Zero Trust is, is designed to do. And it is, uh, for clarity's sake, it is essentially technology agnostic and product agnostic and at some level tactic agnostic. Um, well, you know, I would argue, and uh, this is a free joke, but I would argue that <laughs> I can't be product agnostic because then I could neither confirm nor deny that products exist. So uh, I always like to say that it's vendor neutral, right? It's neutral. There we go. It doesn't, it's neutral to wherever we're located on premise in a cloud. It's neutral to whatever technology we're using. What we care about is what are the data or assets that we're protecting? That's what we care about. And and that's true, right? I mean, you, you know, you, I, in my house, I'm not protecting my house. I'm protecting my family. And a lot of people just don't understand that. Uh, they, they think that, they just need to make, you know, buy a product and, and that will solve everything. And no, if if you don't know what data or assets you're protecting, it doesn't matter how much money you spend or how many products you buy, you're going to fail. Yeah, I we often say on this show, because it's something I picked up very early on uh, from someone who helped spark the idea that this show would even exist. Um, we evangelize the problem, not the product. You took it to the other side, more to the positive side of it, which is you know, we're we're evangelizing the protection of the people we love the most. We're not evangelizing, um, or or I guess in the case of a sales context, the people you love the most, as opposed to, um, you know, this product or purchase or whatever. Um, you mentioned this earlier, and it's something I so appreciate about the way that you talk about all of this. Uh, but it's also there's also probably some science here too human tr- and trust is so fundamental. Like the, that question I asked you off the top, trust often comes up like around belief and passion and sincerity. Trust is often layered into some of that conversation about like the essence of the role, building trust with other people so that they believe the stories that we say and so that they accept our belief as belief that they can invest in and maybe share themselves. Uh, speak a little bit to digital trust versus human trust. Like 
because uh, you talked about anthropomorphized and deanthropomorphized. There's a little something there that I think you have a unique perspective on that I think could be really interesting for the folks that listen to the show. So up until the mid 20th century, trust was a word that was really only used in philosophical or uh, uh, religious kind of contexts. Uh, it wasn't used in business much other than, you know, we want to be your trusted grocery store or something like that. But it was a, what, there's a out of print book that's really fascinating called Plastic Words. It's about the words that you throw around without understanding the meaning. And trust is a plastic word. But in 1958, a guy named Morton Deutsch, who was a workplace theorist, uh, defined trust as the willingness of one person to be vulnerable to another person. Now, I've always talked about trust being a vulnerability in digital systems, and I didn't even know that Deutsch had written this until after I'd published some blog posts on it, and then people were sending me his research because it wasn't yet Googleable, <laughs> if that's even a word. But but he was really onto something, right? The willingness to be vulnerable to somebody else, and so uh, we 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 tend to just think of it as this core human emotion. I think Gladwell calls us trust agents as human beings. But in the digital world, it was just a, a word picked out randomly. And I know the guy who who did it uh, and and assign you know used to assign interface names and. Uh, there was actually a uh, an RFC or a FAC or something written by Ross Anderson on trusted computing, and in in there he, he people will oftentimes point that out. You haven't read Ross Anderson's trusted computing FAC, and I'll say no. I think you haven't read it because in it he says uh, it, trust is a joke. He said trust in, in the federal government. We we say any any system we can compromise that's a trusted system. And so there's all these things people would say to me, you know, Ronald Reagan said you need to trust but verify. And I'm like, yeah, well, Ronald Reagan was a great cybersecurity expert, wasn't he? But in reality, he was quoting a Russian proverb uh, and he was using an English translation of it. But it actually meant, means the opposite. The essence of it in Russian is he was saying to Mikhail Gorbachev, we're going to be watching you. You know, we're going to watch in every step you do. So everybody just took all this stuff and then ran with a narrative that wasn't true and look, nobody looked deeply into it. And, and that's what Forrester Research gave me the ability to do was look at that really deeply and then come out with an idea that I could publish without having to go through like peer review with a, a bunch of, you know, old stodgy people who don't want change either. So I, I think that's one of the reasons academia doesn't work in cybersecurity because there's too much innovation, too much, uh, too much innovation, too fast for academia to keep up. This business, cybersecurity, is experiential. I see people all the time with, you know, all kinds of high-level degrees in cybersecurity who I wouldn't want them doing anything for me in cybersecurity because they haven't experienced it, they haven't done it. And so that's kind of the the thing that, that we need to get back to is having people who who get in the trenches and do the work and learn from that and then they can be the next generation of leaders in this business. Yeah, so much good stuff in there, including, the, the, I think Googleable is a word because you said it and I knew exactly what you meant. So <laughs> that's effective use of language, even if it's not uh, common. Um, and also this idea of hands-on experience, both hands-on experience yourself, 
um, as well as true customer intimacy in these evangelism roles is so critical, not only for your own authority and credibility, but for that empathy and for that understanding and things you can't get any other way. You can't just read about something uh, and know it. Uh, you just get introduced to it by reading about it, uh, unless it's purely an intellectual exercise. But this experiential learning and experiential teaching, I think, is a big deal. Um, talk a little bit about where we are on the adoption curve of this core idea and its implementation. You already shared a little bit about how it it, it was really driven top down, that it really that, that the stories and ideas resonated with executives and got driven down into the organization. But like you know, in the standard tech adoption curve, where are we? I mean, a decade in or a dozen years in, um, are we approaching like a mass? Um, are we edged at the early adopters? Are we like at the top of the peak, like ballpark it? Like, where do you think we are? And and what are you trying to drive yourself? And then we'll get into Illumio a little bit and, and how that's going to facilitate that. Well, we're in the midst of a global movement that's much more widely adopted than you can see. Right. I mean, I've many times I've we've I've gone with people who had done it at their organization. Let's do a case study together. And then we would get stopped by either the legal team or the PR team. We don't want people to know that we have as we have zero trust because we'll that'll put a target on our back. And the answer is, uh, well, no, it actually might turn some of those people away. But I remember after going into talk to a very, very important person about this. Uh, leaving with with the advocate who brought me there, he said, you know, John, zero trust is like fight club. And I said, what do you mean? He says, the first rule is you don't talk about it. And so that's changing a little bit with the executive order. And since we've seen Biden's executive order on zero trust, it's come out in Singapore, Australia. Uh, it's in some UK stuff. It's pretty mainstream. But people say, well, I still don't see very much adoption. But you, you, when you're sailing the, you know, your your version of the Titanic, you're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. And th that's what zero trust is. The, the visible part is the tip of the iceberg. And there's a big, massive amount of it way below there that you aren't allowed to see because people, you know, don't want to talk about what they're doing to defend their most critical assets. Hey, thanks for listening to Chief Evangelist. For so many reasons, podcasting is a great opportunity and channel for evangelism. If you've been thinking about a podcast or you want to shift production and promotion to a team that's especially evangelist friendly, check out ringmaster.com. Their Connect Engage Scale program is designed for evangelist-powered podcasting for software and tech companies in the growth stage. Again, you can learn more at ringmaster.com. They're also the team behind this podcast. Speaking of Chief Evangelist, let's get back to it. What you made me think about was the idea of like, do you put the, I don't know, security sign ADT or whatever, like in your front yard? I feel like um, throwing that sign up just says, ah, oh, there might be an easier target like next door or down the block. Like, um, oh, absolutely. There's a there's a well-known um, cyber uh, thought leader named Richard Baitlick, uh, who was at FireEye and uh, before that, he was at GE, and before that, he was, you know, one of the pioneers in the Air Force. But he always talks about friction, right? Increase friction in your organization so that the attackers are going to move to someplace else because they have an ROI to meet, 
right? Unless they're a nation state attack uh, and and they're doing something like Stuxnet where they don't care that it's going to cost a billion dollars uh, to, to build the attack, they're going to move on to something else because they've got to make money on the dark web. These are This is a, a business. And when you talk to people who prosecute it, people who, um, who, who go after that, you know, like Secret Service, FBI, other foreign, you know, legal and law enforcement agencies, it's a business. And uh, you can, you know, make a lot of money if, if you don't have any morals, that's for sure. But, uh, but, but as one person said to me who's involved in that, he said, attackers don't uh, attack well-defended networks. Why would they? There's so much low-hanging fruit out there. In fact, I was talking to one person who was involved in a prosecution of a well-known cybercrime ring, and he said they had so, so, many, so much data about potential targets that they couldn't get to them fast enough. Right. They were trying to build automated attacks so that they could get to them. And we would show these companies all the information they had about them, all the reconnaissance they'd done. And they knew more about the company's uh, infrastructure than the company did. And my favorite story from that whole thing is when um, a law enforcement agency went into a company and said, hey, you know, how come this big data breach happened? How come all your intellectual property was found in this adversarial foreign nation? And they go, no, everything's fine. It's all up and running. We can get to Facebook, no problem. And they started calling the CIO, the CISO, all the people. No, everything's working fine. Well, in reality, what had happened was this criminal organization was struggling to, to exfiltrate all the data they were stealing. And not because there were controls in place stopping them from doing it. It was just because the network was was crap, right? It was just so poorly uh, designed and configured. So they went in and reconfigured all the routers, routers, switches, and firewalls and made it optimized so that they could exfiltrate everything. And for several months, everybody was just high-fiving the IT team. Man, you know, Facebook is so fast, which, because of course, how fast you can get to Facebook is the ultimate benchmark of, of whether or not you're doing IT well. And uh, and then here comes the Justice Department in with, uh, nope, that's not why things got better in your network. It's because this cyber criminal organization knows more about IT than your people, and, and they they optimized it for better performance, you know? So uh, may maybe, maybe they're, you know, cyber criminal organizations are also managed service providers. I don't know. So funny. It is, it's such an interesting dynamic. There are not very many industries that operate that way um, where the other businesses are not, they're not direct competitors. They're like adversaries. Um, okay. Illumio. How did you find Illumio? How did they find you? Like, um, how did that get going? And what was interesting about it to you? And then we'll eventually get a little bit into the role itself. Like, what does it mean for you to be chief evangelist at Illumio? So I've known the, the founders of Illumio, um, Andrew and PJ, since the company started. I, I did one of their first analyst engagements when I was at Forrester back in, uh, uh, in 2013, I think is when they started. And so they were really interested in Zero Trust because in my second report called Build Security into Your Network's DNA, which I wrote in November of 2010, I said, all modern networks must be uh, highly segmented by default. So you're gonna have to create new ways of doing segmentation. So I've kept in touch with them for years and years. 
And it just kind of came to a point where, um, uh, you know, pe- people would call me, want me to come and uh, to their company. And there just weren't that many interesting companies. There was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, it's it's the same song second verse kind of thing and talking to andrew rubin the ceo he said just give me just open the door a little bit and let me try to barge through and prove to you that we're interesting and he was able to do that and what i liked about it was it could do something which is called zero trust segmentation or micro segmentation from a zero trust perspective is what it is is the technology it could do it very quickly uh you could get almost immediate results. And it was much more cost effective than anything else that I'd been involved in. And, and we, I was seeing so many people just struggling to get started because, you know, a lot of the technologies weren't optimized for this and they weren't certainly weren't optimized for cloud. And so when I looked at Illumio, because they had, you know, a single management construct that worked the same whether you were going to a, a server in a data center or on an endpoint or going to the cloud it meant like you could control from a zero trust perspective in policy uh any asset no matter where where it's located and so i really like that part of it and i like the intuitive nature of it i looked at it and, I, and having installed a lot of different technologies you know it got to be really hard to be a, I was a channel SC, so I had to learn every single uh, technology and each one had a different management construct with its own language. And it just was really difficult to keep up with that. And this was so intuitive. I thought, wow, you know, if you can't, if you can't manage this, then you probably should be in a different business than in uh, IT or cybersecurity. So uh, Andrew convinced me to come on board and, and I really like the company. I really like the culture, the enthusiasm, the passion. This isn't a job for what we would call illumineers, right? And so, uh, you know, you got to have some passion when you're doing this. Hey, folks, cybersecurity is the most fun part of IT. If you're not having fun doing cybersecurity, uh, you're not doing it right. And if you're not realizing that you're making a profound difference in the world, you're making the world safer every single day because everybody's connected to the Internet. Right. And so you're making this safer for your grandmother and uh, I'm making it safer for my seven year old niece. I mean, those are things that that make a big difference over a long period of time. And so, yeah, let's get on it. Let's make the world safer because, you know, this is an adversarial business. You mentioned that word adversarial, and I talk about that a lot. There's three adversarial businesses. There's the military, law enforcement, and cybersecurity. So, you know, be mission focused, just like a, a, you know, police are mission focused to stop crime, military are mission focused to, you know, win wars or stop wars from starting, in fact. And so be mission focused to stop cyber attacks. Love it. I that passion comes through really obviously to me when when you were having these initial conversations, did they know what they wanted from you? And or did you know what you wanted to bring? Like where I'm wondering is like, you probably could be of value to that organization um, in a variety of different ways. Um, how did it wind up being captured in the title chief evangelist and kind of what does that mean? Um, what was the process of, of, of kind of dialing in like, okay, John's interested, let's figure out what he's gonna do and what we're gonna call it and what a good week or a month or a quarter looks like. Yeah, I think there's two sides 
to being an evangelist. You have to be an external evangelist to existing customers, prospects, the world in general. And then you have to be an internal evangelist to your teammates, to your colleagues. And you have to help them understand, you know, where they can go. What is the vision that, that they can have as well? And so those are the two things that attracted me to not only be engaged with customers, but to have an impact in the direction of the product and the impact in the direction of, of marketing, which is why I like to report to the chief marketing officer, because everything comes through marketing, right? The, you know, the, the, the old saying, build a better mousetrap and the world will be a, be a path to your door. That's a lie. You know, market an adequate mousetrap better and the world will be the path to your door. You know, I'm not a big fan of the taste of Red Bull, but I sure like rooting for Max Verstappen uh, in Red Bull racing. So they outmarketed everybody. And uh, I think that that's what you need to understand in, in technology products, especially. There's a lot of failed technologies that were better than the ones that succeeded because they weren't properly marketed. And so you need to be able to, to give that message also to the, uh, to the people who build the products because people fall in love with the stuff that they build, they, you know, not, not just here, but everywhere. Everybody falls in love with their own creation. And it's something that I always guard against related to uh, zero trust. So that's why I did two years of primary research and went and talked to a lot of people and said, hey, poke holes in this idea and, uh, and, and teach me some things, right? And I'm always learning from my customers or from other people in the industry. So it's so important to try to have a, an objective view of whatever you're doing. Yeah, a lot of really good information in there that the one that comes to mind uh, of the kind of better mousetrap scenario that I know you and I are both uh, have experienced with in our past careers is VHS versus beta uh, tapes. And one of them was the better technology, but the other one wound up in everyone's home for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, but the technical piece isn't one of them. Uh, one of them is superior quality. Um, what are some of your main like activities? By the way, I love this outside in, inside out, taking um, the message out to the market, into the world, but then also taking your own experiences and stories and kind of feedback from the market and bring it into the company. Um, what are some of like, are, are, is this like workshops? Is it webinars? Is it, you know, internal lunch and learns on Zoom? Is it stage presentations at conferences? It is, is it all of the above? Is it publishing in, you know, all the formats we would assume like audio, video, writing? Like what is, what are some of your main activity areas? Yeah, it's everything you've talked about. It's everything you've talked about. You know, it's everything from, you know, being on podcasts with folks like you or giving a speech at, at, a, at an event or uh, going to, to a customer meeting or doing design work. I still architect uh, a lot of these environments, you know, put me at a, I'm most comfortable in front of a whiteboard, right? So I've gotten to whiteboard these things in amazing places. You know, in, I've sat in the Pentagon in front of a whiteboard and whiteboarded it out to uh, generals and admirals and explained what was going on and why they needed to do it. And so <clears throat> it's all those things. How do you get the message across and understand how to be successful, right? It's not just we're going to do it and we're going to say it and, and it's a flag we can wave. You have to be successful at doing it. 
and uh, it's been tested enough and, and there's been enough to, adoption of it that uh, it's actually pretty amazing to me. There are zero trust environments that I'm aware of on all seven continents of the globe. And when, if you would have told me this years ago that there was going to be this successful, I would have said, uh, get back in your DeLorean and turn on the flux capacitor and, and get up to 88 miles an hour and however many gigajoules of electricity you need and, and uh, go back to, to Hill City because I couldn't imagine uh, that, that it was gonna, there were going to be this many people who were very excited about it. Really good. If uh, if you are too young to understand what he was talking about, just Google Back to the Future. It is really worth it. That was like it's... one of the greatest movies of all time, right? Yeah. And of course, people know about it if they go to Disney. I just we we just, just took a family trip to Disney, and there's a whole Back to the Future thing there and all that stuff. So yeah, awesome. And the first one, by the way, sequels. Uh... The first anyway. one was almost the perfect movie. Yeah. Um, okay. So I. I... This is just a general question based on my conversations with dozens of other evangelists. And I'm wondering if you would characterize not a Lumio, but kind of the industry in general, because you you obviously through your uh, analyst work were inside tons of organizations and, of course, have held several different uh, positions yourself. You know, we'll talk to someone from a uh, legal software company or from an education software company. And one of the things they're doing uh, as an evangelist uh, whether or not they take that formal title is is separate, but but part of what they're doing from that inside out, outside in dynamic is they're coming in as a as a practitioner. I was a lawyer slash I am still licensed or practicing. Um, I was an educator in these three different types of scenarios, and so now I'm going to come in and help the salespeople. I'm going to help the marketers. I'm going to help the product people who are marketers, salespeople, and product people of software in the cases I'm thinking of. And so they need that kind of customer intimacy that that really only comes through having been in the seat, some of that hands-on stuff that we're talking about and having more direct and more complete access to that kind of intelligence and the language and the perspective and the real challenges and the real problems that you don't always get when a product marketer or a product manager does a, you know, a handful of customer interviews to validate an idea that they generated internally, um, you know, as opposed to uh, through, through, I would say, um, customer intimacy, like as a lived experience rather than an exercise in a moment of need. I know I, I said a lot there. Does any of that resonate with you? Like, like does your ability to go into some of these firms uh, bring um, the language and the perspective and the empathy that the people doing some of the construction of the product and service delivery need to hear? Yeah, absolutely, because I've been there, right? I mean, I've sat in the middle of the night, freezing cold in a data center, configuring a router or a switch or doing whatever, frustrated by a product that somebody designed without thinking about how it was going to be used. I used to joke about how there were so many technologies designed by engineers for engineers. But if you didn't have a PhD in electrical engineering from the place that they got their PhD from, you were never going to understand, you know, how to how to actually use this. So usability was really low on a lot of people's, uh, you know, totem pole of, of, of ideas. And then also a lot of people who who build products actually haven't experienced the problems in cybersecurity. So they they understand the technology and, you know, the movement of, of the electrons or whatever, 
but they don't re- they've never been a, a security person. And so to have that a practitioner background is super important, not only for credibility, but just for understanding what your customers are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And it's a hard job because, you know, it's very similar to magic. The people who who run companies don't understand what IT and cybersecurity do, and they don't understand how fundamentally important it is. I mean, your business isn't going to run unless these digital systems work, right? I mean, you could have, uh, you could be an airline and have the three P's of the airline business, planes, pilots, and, and passengers sitting on the runway, but if the computer system isn't working, you're not getting off the ground. And we're seeing that today in, in crazy ways. Like, I don't know if you saw or if you've seen uh, <laughs> the, the, the issues that are ha- happening with um, GPS attacks. And, and there's a lot of planes that are in the middle of, you know, routes and they're going, hey, our GPS isn't working and they have to get vectored with manual uh, compass headings and altimeter settings and, and all that kind of stuff. So everything that we have is so digital that everything is also vulnerable. Yeah. The, uh, I guess, final question before my favorite final question that I ask everyone. Uh, this is more an observation that I'd love for you to add to or react to and however, and with whatever comes to you. You've been essentially developing and evangelizing this idea for 12, 14 years. Uh, we look at it now and we say, well, of course, this is an idea that, that should have happened and that everyone should have adopted. But we all know that it's a long, hard road. And as much as someone wants like virality of their idea and they want to see results immediately, I have a feeling that zero trust spread like everything else, person to person, company to company, fits and starts. I tried to implement it. (laughs) It didn't didn't work for me because I maybe didn't wrong or I didn't understand it or whatever, like Talk a little bit about this journey in hindsight of evangelizing the same idea over, you know, 12, 14 years, all the ground that's been covered. Like, essentially, it's one person at a time. It's one conversation at a time. And if you can spark enough people to do those conversations for you, then it can spread faster. But like, this isn't just an idea. This is a, I need to understand it. I need to care about it. And I need to implement it and it needs to work. Like there's so much that needed to go right for, for, for you to be in the position that you're in and for zero trust to have taken the hold that it has on all seven continents. Um, there's no question there. I'm just, <laughs> does that trigger anything for you? You want to add to it in any way? Well, I mean, w- one good friend of mine who works in the federal government calls me the Comp- Copernicus of cybersecurity, right? That, yeah, everybody realizes now that the earth revolves around the sun, but it wasn't self-evident to people a long time ago, but it took a long time for that to be adopted. And that's fine, right? I mean, uh, it wasn't like, I often get asked, aren't you, you know, somehow angry or whatever that, that it took a long time for people to adopt it? And the answer is no, because I had years of being the only person doing it. So I got to make the mistakes and then document those mistakes and tell you about them so that you don't make the same mistakes that I made. And uh, I think that's, that's a valuable thing. So if you don't have patience, you know, don't come up with a new idea. 
right? Because a lot of the new ideas that take off turn out to be really bad ideas. Uh, Theranos and WeWork and all that stuff that they end up making, uh, you know, Hulu um, limited miniseries is about. And so uh, I don't ever want to be in that position. I don't want to be famous. I don't want any of that. I just want to make the world a little bit better place uh, today than it was yesterday. Really good. That's all any of us can do. Uh, And it at the same time is a very, very high bar. Uh, Really appreciate your approach to things. Congratulations on all of the success and for dramatically changing countless lives um, through this, through this model and through your persistence in, in learning it, practicing it, teaching it, developing it, and, and essentially, uh, evangelizing it before I let you go though, John, uh, what is something that you find yourself evangelizing in your own personal life? Or what is something that someone close to you has accused you of evangelizing? Well, my outside passion right now is helping veterans transition out of the military into civilian life. Um, Most people don't know it, but the biggest health crisis we have in this country is veteran suicide. Uh, According to the Veterans Administration, 22 veterans a day kill themselves because they don't know how to transition into civilian life. It's a very scary thing for them. And uh, so I've been lucky enough to meet up with a bunch of people, help a number of those people with that transition, uh, because it's very frightening. I was, I'm working with a guy who's a Navy SEAL, uh, just got out of the SEAL teams, and he called me up and he goes, John, I just had an interview, and man, if my wife would let me, I'd rejoin the SEALs right now, because I'd rather be overseas in a gun battle with uh, terrorists than have to go into a room and have another interview. And hey, I've been interviewing all my life. So, you know, you get those people and help them uh, deal with that. But, you know, and 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 it's fruitful. It makes you feel good. I just uh, this week connected a uh, ex-Green Beret with a guy who had a job that had his skill set in the place where he needed to be in six months. And that job was going to open up in six months and it's going to come together. And so you feel like, okay, I've helped this person, this person who did something that Quite frankly, I'm thankful I didn't have to do, right? My dad was a Korean War combat veteran and and he had severe PTSD. And so I have a lot of sympathy, not just for the, the, the young men and women who go and fight in these wars and see horrible things that they should never have to see, but also their families who are as much a victim of that and, and as much a veteran of that as anybody else. So if we can, you know, the one thing I would say to your audience who's listening is try to hire veterans. And it's easy to do. There's a whole program called SkillBridge that most people don't know about. But as a veteran is transitioning out of the military into civilian life, the Department of Defense, your tax dollars will pay usually up to six months of their salary, and they can come work for you essentially for free. And uh, the only rule is you can't pay them extra. And then they get to make a smooth, easy transition uh, out into the private sector, which is a very frightening thing to them, right? I mean, being in a gun battle would be very scary to me. Not to them. They, you know, they're like, yeah, they would be, just, yeah, just get behind me. Everything will be okay. So I need to be the guy that is, yeah, get behind me. Let me help you uh, figure out how to do a resume. Here's how you network with people. You know, I just told a guy the other day, you got to get on LinkedIn. Well, I've never been on LinkedIn before. Well, it's 
not scary, but to him it was, you know, but you got to build a network. How do you do that? I mean, the things that you and I do all the day, all the time, we connected in all these same ways. Um, it's just outside of them because they've been in a world where, as one SEAL told me who served in Afghanistan and Iraq, the easiest job I ever had was being a Navy SEAL. And I said, how could that even be true? Right. Because you see all the movies and it looks so awful. And he says, no, no. They tell you when to get up, when to go to breakfast, when to go to lunch, when to go to dinner, when to go to medical, when to do this, when to do that. In average, there's been studies. The average military person makes 50 decisions for themselves a day. And people like you and I have to make over 500 for ourselves, 10 times as many decisions. And, you know, the military doesn't train them to come out and get civilian jobs. They train them to do things in the military. And well, that's clearly understandable. But once you're out of the military, they kind of, they kind of don't care what happens to you. And so we as a society and as business leaders and as technologists need to care. And that's the thing that I'm trying to evangelize now. Beautifully done. Uh, is SkillBridge or SkillsBridge? SkillBridge, I, I believe. Very and it's good. like anything with the federal government. It is so hard to use. You got to find somebody who understands how to use it because, uh, you know, your HR people will go, yeah, we want to do that. And then they'll call up and go, God, how do I navigate through this? And so, you know, if anybody is watching from that make it as easy to use as indeed, you know, cause it's like indeed for, for, for military members, except it's, it's not as easy to use. Yeah. Wherever you are watching or listening, I will round that up and drop that link down below. It'll be down below in your podcast player, uh, or it will be down below in YouTube. And of course we put these up at chief evangelist.com. I'll put that link there. A couple other links I'd like to put with it, John, any, anywhere you would send people who have gotten to this point in the conversation and want to learn more about you, about Zero Trust, about Illumio, or about any of the things that you care about? Well, yeah, go to Illumio.com, of course. You know, check out our micro-segmentation for Zero Trust or Zero Trust segmentation platform, right? So uh, uh, I think it's really cool. That's why I came here. I don't go to places that I don't believe in the technology. Um, you should also look at the president's NSTAC report on zero trust and trusted identity access. I was honored to be named to, to, to be a member of that subcommittee and then to be a briefer and to be one of the co-authors of that report. And so that is, we would say, authoritative on that. And then the Cloud Security Alliance is doing great work on building training programs around zero trust. We've got a zero trust working group. And I think for what they are is is the organization that's not just uh us centric they're they're world focused and so in april april 12th i'll be doing a zero trust workshop in in zurich in conjunction with the cloud security alliance for example so uh this is a this is a global movement and um you know and, and it's actually easy to do and it will make a big difference in your organization Awesome. Again, I will round all that stuff up. It is right down below wherever you are watching or listening. John, I appreciate you and I wish you continued success. Hey, thanks so much, Ethan, for having me. I really, really appreciate it. That wraps up this episode of Chief Evangelist. Thank you for joining us. And thanks to Ringmaster Conversational Marketing for helping bring these episodes to you. With any thoughts or questions about the Chief Evangelist role, message me on LinkedIn. I'm Ethan Butte, E-T-H-A-N, E-E-U-T-E. -E -E. 
For show notes and more of these conversations, visit chiefevangelist.com.